Let's pray. So, Father, we long today that we would have ears to hear your words, that we might be those who understand your grace and respond to it with obedience and faith, that we might know the beauty, the wonder, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose precious name today we pray. Amen. Well, this last week, following the death of Her Majesty the Queen, many have reminisced on their memories of the late sovereign. They've spoken about meeting her and the extraordinary privilege of it. And amongst those who've spoken have been a number of American presidents. They've spoken of how, as heads of state, the greatest privilege known to them was to attend a state banquet at Buckingham Palace or Windsor. The last was head for Donald Trump in 2019. State banquets under the Queen were extraordinary occasions, with preparations beginning a year in advance. Held at Buckingham Palace in the Great Room or at Windsor Castle, banqueting hall features a horseshoe-shaped table seating up to 117 guests. There would have been tables set three to five days taken to set them. 19 service stations, each of them occupied by a page and a footman and an under-butler and a wine-butler. George IV's grand service is always unpacked for the occasion, with 4,000 silver gilt pieces for dining, taking a team of three officials eight weeks to unpack with a total of 2,000 pieces of cutlery used for each occasion and set exactly 45 centimeters apart. Napkins are embroidered with the Queen's monogram and folded into a Dutch bonnet and placed on the table with absolute precision. The menu for a state banquet is in French, the official language of courts. The menu officially approved by the Queen. The last banquet in 2019 for President Trump featured a tranche of steamed fillet of halibuts with watercress mousse, asparagus spears, chevril sauce for starter, followed by the main course, including new season spring Windsor royal lamb, herb stuffing, spring vegetables, carrots in tarragon, and Pom Elizabeth with a port sauce, a strawberry dessert staple with lemon, verbena cream, and a selection of French, fresh fruit and coffee. It's an amazing privilege. Only for foreign heads of states, only for senior diplomats and members of the royal family. And then as they gather, out is brought the finest wine the Windsor Great Park 2014 English sparkling wine, which has its roots in Windsor Castle's own ancient vineyard planted in the 12th century under Henry II, and a selection of fine wine, including the Burgundy Claret, one of which was a Lafitte Rothschild's 1990, with a retail value of £843 per bottle. You walk in to the state trumpeters as they herald the arrival of the queen with her guest, the president. 
and you walk out as you're piped out by the bagpiper to an initial and second reception. But just imagine being invited to a banquet like that. Imagine receiving the invitation from the palace to attend just one of 170 guests. Just imagine receiving the invitation from the Lord Chamberlain. How would you respond and who would you tell? It's an amazing thought. But that's the backdrop to our text this morning here in Luke 15. In chapter 14, Jesus is at a dinner party. He's at the house of a prominent socialite, a Pharisee, surrounded by the political establishment of his day, the social elites, when suddenly one of the guests at the table declares, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. What he's thinking about is the day when they thought the kingdom would arrive in Jerusalem and on earth. When the king would arrive in the capital city, defeating the enemies and ushering in the kingdom of God on earth in Israel. He's saying it's going to be a great day as we sit with the king at the banqueting table of the victory on that day. But Jesus takes this as his cue to teach us this morning exactly what the future will be like on that great and awesome day when Jesus Christ returns in glory. And there are three sides, three arresting sides to this extraordinary story which unlocks what the future is going to be like. Are we listening? Here's the first. Because God is inviting us into his heaven. And that's verse 16. Jesus says, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. The French uh, foodie, Jean Atlem Brillant Savet, writing in the early decades of the 19th century, remarked, read the historians from Herodias down to our day and you will see that there has never been a great event not even accepting conspiracies which have not been conceived or worked out or organized over a meal. And he's right. Because all the way through the Bible's story, this meal or banquet is central. Who do you invite to a special meal like Thanksgiving or Christmas? And it's always close friends or family, isn't it? And that's the picture here, as God is inviting those he wants to be closest to into relationship with him. It's the story of the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Here is the picture of the gospel. Here is the God of the universe. He's not distant, but he longs to be close. He longs to have a relationship with you and to invite you into his very presence, if you like, around his very table. 
And this picture of the banquet to which you're invited takes us to the very heart of the gospel and the three great F's. What is the gospel? It is the promise of forgiveness for all our guilt. What's on your conscience this morning? Second great F, it is a promise of friendship with the God who loves us in a cold and dark universe. And the third great F is future, a promise of a future with him in the glory of his new kingdom forever. The three great Fs, forgiveness, forgiveness for all my sin and friendship with the God who loves me and a future with him in the glory of his kingdom forever. So this dinner party, if you look at the text, is not an ordinary dinner party in some corner of Jerusalem, verse 15. It's a big banquet. It's a great banquet. And there aren't just a couple of close friends, but there are many guests. It's like that royal banquet at Buckingham Palace. And this picture of the banquet is how the story of Scripture ends. Because as the Apostle John looks ahead into eternity in the future, as the curtain of history is opened for him to see behind the scenes of the sets of history in Revelation 19, listen to what John sees. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made himself ready. Here is the feast at the ends of the age. Now all this must mean there's an urgent corrective for the way that so many people think about God. So many people think about God as this ogre, a distant deity stuck up somewhere in heaven with no interest in us suffering down here on planet Earth. And we think of heaven as some distant, vague idea, so boring, like an eternal school chapel service. And George Bernard Shaw, I think speaking for many, once wrote this, Heaven, as conventionally conceived, is a place so inane, so dull, so useless, so miserable that nobody has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven, though plenty of people have described a day at the seaside. But no, God's kingdom will be a physical place of stunning beauty and perfect physical health pulsating with joy and life and happiness and glory where everything will only ever be good all of the time, where there will be nothing sad or bad. Picture the most stunning place you've ever been. Is it Bermuda or the Grand Canyon or some skiing resort? Picture it in your mind's eye. Multiply it times a trillion trillion and you're not even close to the glory of this place. Now picture the happiest moment of your life. Was it getting married or holding that first baby? Think of the joy of that moment 
and multiply it a trillion times a trillion trillion, and you're not even close to the glory of what this place will feel like. So what happens next? What happens now? Which is to say, how then do we get in on this kingdom? What do we have to do or achieve to make sure we're in? What do I have to pay or be or do? Well, if our first point is God is inviting you into his heaven, here's the second amazing truth. He himself has got everything ready. Look what it says in the text, verse 17. At the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. Back in the ancient world, in the day before, days before Harrods and Whole Foods and Selfridges, there would have been a double invitation that would have come in two parts for a feast like this. The first invitation would have been a general invitation. The Lord Chamberlain would have sent it out saying, you are cordially invited by His Majesty the King to a great banquet, RSVP. And on receipt of that first invitation, you would have said, yes, we would be delighted to come, and you would have accepted the invitation. And then it would have taken this host three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine months to get it all ready. The best beef would have to have been sourced from the prime herds of the fertile plains of Bashan, slaughtered and prepared. The salt collected from the Dead Sea. The duck a l'orange marinated. The asparagus spears and cucumbers picked. The lamb arranged with herb stuffing. The spring vegetables and port sauce prepared with the strawberries, the peaches and the apples collected brought from Egypt and the lemon verbena cream prepared. But the point is that since that first invitation and that first acceptance, this host has been very busy at great personal cost, preparing this extraordinary meal for his guests. Of course, when you're invited to a dinner party, the first thing we always say is, what can I bring? And very often the host will say, well, thanks very much. I mean, could you bring the salads, or perhaps a bottle of wine, or could you do the apple crisp? That would be fantastic. If we're really unlucky, it's a potluck, where actually we all have to cook the thing uh, together. Though, of course, it's fun, because you don't quite know what you'll end up eating. But here, this isn't a potluck. Here, this isn't, please bring a bottle or the salads. Here, this host gets everything ready himself. And in this, verse 17, we see a picture of the gospel. This host is incredibly generous. He invites you, and then he prepares it all by himself, because this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. 
We are invited for free, and there is nothing that we need to bring. There is nothing that you need to contribute, because the basis on which we enter is nothing to do with us and what we can marshal up, but everything to do with his kindness and generosity and mercy and love. It's Isaiah 55, the reading we just had. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you don't need to be part of the social elites. You don't have to open your uh, jacket and pull out your credit card and pay with American Express. You don't need to be a person of outstanding moral virtue. You don't need to win the Nobel Peace Prize or have a Congressional Medal of Honor. You don't have to be Mother Teresa or the Pope or a Nelson Mandela. You don't have to dress up smart. You don't have to have a moral facelift. The basis on which we enter into God's heaven is by His mercy, not our merits. We are accepted by His kindness for free. But how does this work? If we're saying the God of heaven is perfect in holiness, a God who must punish sin when he sees it because he's a God to whom moral categories matter. How does this work? How can God accept a sinner like me into his heaven with no questions asked and for free? And the answer is to do with the cross. For Jesus, as he teaches this parable, is on his way to Jerusalem He's already told his disciples that he's going to die, a deliberate death. Of course, it's always sad when a sovereign dies. But here our sovereign Jesus is saying, I'm going to die deliberately. For as he hangs at the cross of Calvary, all of my sin and guilt and shame is placed on his shoulders as he faces the full ferocity of the anger of God which I deserve, as he faces hell for me, as he pays instead of me, so that in paying for my guilt and giving me his perfection, I might be admitted into heaven as though I was Jesus myself. J.C. Ryle the bishop from Liverpool speaks in his commentary in Luke of this story like this. This is the gospel. The gospel contains a full supply of everything that sinners need to be saved. We are all naturally starving and empty and helpless and ready to perish. Forgiveness of all sin and peace with God and justification and sanctification and grace and glory in the end are the gracious provisions that God has prepared. There is nothing that sin-laden hearts can wish 
all weary consciences can require, which is not spread in rich abundance in Christ. Christ, in one word, is the sum and substance of this great supper. It's a corrective, isn't it? It's a corrective to how so many people think of God. A comedian that you've probably heard of called Stephen Fry recently denounced God as, quote, utterly evil, capricious, and monstrous. But Stephen Fry, for all of his Cambridge intelligence, misses the truth spectacularly. The God of the Bible is good, and He's for us, and He loves us, and He's given everything for us in sending His only Son to death at the cross. And through the death of Jesus, He flings open the gates of heaven so that anybody, no matter who they are or what they have done, can enter into God's eternal paradise after death for free. But we're suspicious of free gifts. There was an experiment done just a few years ago in central London. A man stood in Oxford Circus, right in the center of the city, and he had a pile of money in his hands. And he walked up to individuals and said, hey, would you like a hundred pounds? And they looked at him and said, no, no thank you, and walked away. The next person walked up, he said, do you want a hundred pounds? No thanks. It happened again and again, not one person took the free gift because we think there must be strings there must be some small print at the bottom of the contract that the lawyers have drafted. It can't possibly be this good to be true. But it is. At the heart of every approach to God in every other religion is a to-do list. So the Catholic thinks and says, well, I've got to be baptized, and then I've got to be confirmed. And then to be saved, I've got to go to confession, and I've got to give alms, and I've got to say my Hail Marys, and I've got to say the Our Fathers, and go to the confessional. It's the same for the Muslim, who believes that he has to go to Friday prayers at the mosque. At least once in his life, he has to go to Mecca for the Hajj on pilgrimage. He has to give alms and be a good Muslim to please Allah and be saved. And it's the same for us. Even if we go to church and we are Christian people, we assume it's kind of 90-10. Jesus has 90% saved me because he's died on the cross and he's given me his spirit, but now 10%, I've got to give 10%. I've got to cooperate and come to church and give my tithes be a good Christian and grow in sanctification. We believe there is still something, even if it's not 10%. Well, he does 99% and I do 1%. I have to give 1% of my own virtue to God to be saved. No. The banquet is his invitation. The preparations are all done by him. We are saved 100% by His grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. We do not pay 
You don't need to go on Hajj. You do not need to say your Hail Marys. This is extraordinary good news. God is inviting us to his banquets. He himself has got everything ready. So how do you expect the story now to continue? It's obvious, isn't it? These guests are going to be so amazed by amazing grace. These guests are going to be bowled over by the love and mercy and sheer generosity of this extraordinary host. And so the doors are going to open as they pour in for the privilege of being at this banquet. That's how the story is going to continue, isn't it? But no. The story continues with the most extraordinary excuses. Verse 18, they said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to look at it. Please excuse me. At verse 19, another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And verse 20, a third man said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot, I will not come. Excuses. Some years ago, an Australian insurance company in Sydney published some of the most absurd and funny excuses that people made in their insurance claims. Listen to this. I reversed out of my driveway and hit a bus. It was five minutes early. The second I was driving along when suddenly I hit a tree. It appeared from nowhere. Uh, here's my personal favorite. I was driving along when I suddenly saw my mother-in-law. I had to swerve a number of times until I eventually hit her. But the point is, each of those excuses is pathetic. And it's the same in our story today. Verse 18, the first guest. I've bought a piece of land and I need to go and look at it. Please excuse me, but hang on. You're meant to do the inspection before you settle and complete the purchase. And if you've already bought it and had settlement, it's too late and you've already bought the land, so what's the hurry? And why do you need to go and look at the land now? Verse 19, the second excuse is equally lame. I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please excuse me. But the time for the test drive of the BMW or the five yoke of oxen was before you bought it. Why do you need to burn the oxen around the paddock now? It's not harvest, it's not pressing, it's not time sensitive. The third guy, verse 20, I've married a wife and for that reason I can't come. On first read, it's a good excuse. He's on honeymoon. But actually, the Old Testament said you are allowed to miss military service, but not excuse yourself from social life. And the point is that this invitation from this host went out months and months ago. He had accepted, and now he just wants to get out of the invitation each of these men refused to come. It's a terrible snub. It's a snap in the face. As somebody once said, an excuse is the skin of a reason 
stuffed with a lie. And that's here because at the end of the day, the heart of the issue is that these three men don't really want anything to do with the host. They've accepted the initial acceptance. They said we would like to come and said we would be thrilled to attend. And the casual observer would have thought, well, yeah, they all want to be there and they all will be there, but that casual acceptance initially concealed the real heart of the matter, which is that neither of them really wanted anything to do with this host at all. And this is how the world responds to God's, the God who made us. We go to church and we look as if we love him. We get baptized and turn up for church at Christmas or more often. We look like we really love the host and want everything to do with him. But actually, deep down in the recesses of our hearts, we don't really want him to take control and be Lord and King. We want to be free, and we don't trust his rule, which is bizarre given how good and gracious he is. And actually, each of these excuses are the same excuses people make today. I've bought a field, and I've just got married. What they're saying is, I, I, I can't come because of my possessions, and I can't come because of my relationship. Possessions and relationship must take priority over this host. It's exactly the same today, isn't it? So many people, yes, in theory I'll follow Jesus, but actually, no, I won't, because my business, my career, my possessions, my farm, and my marriage and my family must come first. This parable is really the story of God's gracious dealings with his world, because there have been three invitations. The prophets came to the people of the Old Testament and said, come to the banquet, Isaiah 55. But the people of Israel rejected. Then Jesus came with the second invitation, and he said, come into my kingdom and know my love and grace and be saved. But they crucified him. And now goes out the third invitation as the apostles and us, the church of God, takes out the invitation to the ends of the earth and still the gospel is rejected. But it's a practical and it's a sobering lesson, isn't it, of so many people who sit under the sound of the gospel, who hear the invitation week by week, month by month, year by year, who kind of accept it, but never really do in their hearts. Are you here this morning as a teenager or a student? Or you're here because your spouse wants you to be here? Or you're here because it's just the thing to do on a Sunday? Or you're here because you're a Lydie's person and that's what you've been doing in your family for decades and generations? Are you here this morning as somebody who hears the invitation, but there is a sin in your heart that means you will not come, or a desire to be free from Christ that means you will not come, or a barrier or a roadblock, or something in you that says, no, I will not come to Jesus and his saving grace? 
It is such a tragedy. And I want to urge you this morning, don't refuse the invitation of Jesus. It's got an RSVP at the bottom. Jesus, in his love and mercy, whether you're listening online here in the States or overseas, or you're here in the building, or you're watching later in the week, whoever you are, the invitation is for you to come. But if I won't come, it won't thwart God's purposes. In verse 21, as these people refuse, a new guest list is drawn up. The host says to the slave, go quickly out to the streets and the lanes and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind. And the servant says, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. This is the God who is determined that his heaven will be full of people to enjoy his eternal paradise forever. So now in verse 22, another invitation goes out to even more people, so unpromising, as he goes out into the streets and the hedges to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Verse 23, go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be full. The thing is, when you try to emigrate to the United States, it's actually really difficult. Uh, first of all, you need a sponsor. Then you need to show your bank accounts have sufficient money. Then you need to show that you won't be a public charge. Then you have to go through an FBI check as they check that you've never been involved in espionage or terrorism or that you've never taken drugs. You then have to do a biometrics check, and on top of all of that, you have to do a medical in the city you're coming from, in my case, London, and for four hours, they do a medical check on you to check that you have no communicable disease that you will bring into this country and infect the population. It is very tight. When it comes to heaven, it's not like that. God says in verse 23, go out and bring in the poor and the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. These are all people who wouldn't have been admitted to the temple because of their deformities and diseases. But God is flinging open the doors of heaven, not for the morally upright, but for the sick, and the poor, and the crippled. I spoke to somebody this week, and he said to me, it's too late for me to become a Christian. It is never too late to become a Christian. No matter who you are or what you have done, the arms of Jesus are open. Verse 23, go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be full. That word compel in the original Greek is very strong and at first it sounds almost coercive. But it's not because this is the God who will accept your rejection of him. We've seen that. But that word compel there underlines the urgency of this offer. And it's a lesson both for those who are not Christian and for those who are. Compel them to come in to my kingdom. It's a verb we would use of a man on the Golden Gate Bridge who sees somebody who's about to jump. What would you do in that situation as you walked across the bridge? Wouldn't you hold on to him? Wouldn't you plead with that teenager? 
Wouldn't you hold on and plead with that teenager and compel them not to jump? What would you do if you were talking to a nephew or a niece on heroin who was about to take an injection or a, or a, a snort up the nose that would kill them? Would you not be compelling them not to do that? That's the sense here. The famous preacher from London, Charles Spurgeon, once preached a sermon on this text entitled, Compel Them to Come. And in it, he spoke of his desperate love for the lost, and he said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. In that sermon, Compel Them to Come, preached on December the 8th, 1858, Spurgeon applied the passage like this. He began talking about the kinds of people who were invited, and then he started inviting people to come into the kingdom of God. And then he started pressing the invitation of the gospel, and then he switched from inviting to commanding. And then he reminded people that God commands you to believe and repent and respond to the gospel. And then he switched to a mode of exhortation and exhorting and encouraging people to come to Christ. And then he switched to entreating and pleading with people to turn away from their unbelief. And then he moved to threatening and to warning warning people of the consequences of turning away from Jesus. He spoke of the threats and realities of eternal judgments. And then he ended his sermon by saying this. The last thing I can do is weep and pray for you. Tears and prayers are the arms of a minister to lay hold of his people. Then he finally turned to the Holy Spirit in prayer, praying as he preached, and he said, Holy Spirit's, we can't compel you to do anything, but we ask you to compel the hearts of men to come. And it was such a powerful sermon that a year later, Spurgeon would bump into people and say, scarcely a week went by when there wasn't someone who said to him in London, I was converted in that sermon as you preach the gospel with that urgency, compel them to come. I was talking to a soldier a couple of years ago and he said to me, I could never come, not after the affair and the abortions and the divorce, not after abandoning my first wife's children, and not after my drug addictions and alcohol problem. He was a taxi driver, and I said to him, no, you can come. Indeed, you're invited and commanded to come. There is still room. Indeed, a greater willingness on God's part to save sinners than there is on the part of sinners to be saved. Will you come to Christ and his love and beauty and grace today? That's the question if you're not a Christian. Will you come
to Christ today. And for those of us who are Christian, will you engage in evangelism with this urgency and with this importance? And in line with that, let me just tell you about something I'm about to do in the church. I'm about to go through every single area of this church as the senior pastor and check to see if that area of ministry and this area of ministry and that department of ministry is outward looking with an urgent gospel initiative. We can't be an inward looking church anymore because the gospel is about turning from ourselves outwards, compel them to come. We're gonna be looking at the kids ministry and saying, is it outward looking? What about the youth ministry? Is it outward looking? What about the choir? In what way is that serving the gospel by being outward looking? Or the bell choir? What about ladies of Lydies and our small groups? Every single area of ministry must be outward looking or it shouldn't continue to be in existence here at Lydies. We dare not be an inward looking incestuous church because the gospel of Jesus is compel them to come because God is inviting us into his heaven. He himself has got everything ready and our job as a church is to take that gospel out and out even to the poor and the crippled and the lame. But if you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your grace and mercy, for your forgiveness and love. Help us to be those who know that grace today and who come to Jesus to worship him, to trust him, and to serve him as Savior and as King. We pray it with thanks to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.